Welcome everyone. Um, my name is Andrew Barry. I'm head of geography department here. Um, it's. Uh, I'm only going to say a few words because I'm sure you want to hear the speaker from me. Sorry, I'm only going to say a few words because um, I'm sure you want to hear from Timothy Mitchell, not me. Um, but I'll just say a few words of introduction. And it's a huge pleasure to welcome Timothy Mitchell here to UCL. Um, I looked at him on the website and I found that you have this extraordinary title, um, Professor of Middle Eastern, South Asian and African Studies and International and Public Affairs, which you know, says something about the committee structure of Columbia University, I suspect. But uh, I think um, it really surprisingly doesn't do justice to the full range of um, Tim's concerns. Uh, he's made a huge uh, impact on uh, post-colonial theory and history, but above all, I think, and uh, um, through uh, engagement uh, with a wide range of literatures, but also through long-term um, historical work in Egypt and the Middle East, um, with really interrogating um, key categories of the social sciences, in particular, the state, democracy, uh, and the economy, um, in a series of really important books, most notably, um, the Rule of Experts, Egypt, Technopolitics, Modernity, and Carbon Democracy. Um, and he's continued to do so um, more recently with developing an ideas of capitalization. Um, I think his, his work on the relationships between the carbon economy, um, the state and democracy is so vital in, uh, today in thinking about how we engage with the question of the transition, if that is the right word, and it's a question of whether it is the right word, to a post-carbon economy. Um, so it's a huge pleasure to, to welcome Tim here today to talk um, uh, to us. And over to you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, Andrew is a, a, a colleague and a friend who I've known for many, many years, and it's a, a, a wonderful privilege for him to invite me here and to be able to speak to all of you, including a few friends and the odd member of the family as well. Our political predicament today appears to be defined by Two numbers, the growth of GDP and the limit of CO2. One number measures the health of the economy, the other signals the fate of the earth. The first must increase if a government wants to survive in office. The second must set a limit if humanity wants to survive on the planet. The two numbers are incommensurable. They record different phenomena measured on different scales. But the double imperative of economic growth and carbon reduction has brought them into relation with one another. There's been no agreement about this relationship. How are the two numbers connected? Does the continued growth of the economy, the measure of progress and well-being on which modern political orders have been built, require the continued growth of carbon emissions, or can the two numbers be decoupled? If carbon emissions are to be limited to an atmospheric concentration of 450 parts per million, what will be the consequences for the political and economic 
order premised upon the annual growth of GDP. The prevailing view is that the two numbers can somehow be disconnected. For more than two decades now, the International Development Agencies, the United Nations, and through various of its organizations, have promoted the possibility of green growth, sustainable development. The UN produces a statistical measure that combines measures of economic growth with measures of uh, environmental degradation or improvement. In Europe and North America today, political parties on the left are promoting the possibility of a green industrial revolution. On the other hand, those who oppose the possibility of green growth argue from the point of view actually of both sets of numbers. They can argue that economically we cannot afford the kinds of investments that a transition to a green economy would require. And in any case, materially, we cannot decouple that economic growth from carbon emissions. Decoupling debunked was the title of a report published six months ago by Europe's largest network of environmental organizations. There was no evidence, said the report, that economic growth could be delinked from growth in carbon emissions. And based on previous experience, there were several reasons for doubting that it ever would. The production of fossil fuels is increasing, not only in quantity, but in the cost and energy intensity of, its product, of their production. Using more efficient devices, for example, a more fuel-efficient vehicle can lead to increases in the activity, more car driving rather than less consumption. Technological change is not targeted specifically at carbon reduction, and anyway, is not happening fast enough, the report suggested. Or if it does, it shifts the problem from one place to another, from fossil fuels to lithium mining, or habitat loss to produce biofuels, and so on. The report concluded that economic production and consumption must be downscaled, in affluent countries at least, and therefore, as it said in its conclusion, we must declare farewell to green growth. Curiously, the report is based only on evidence, or almost entirely on evidence, from the past. It doesn't raise the question about the extent to which historical experience is the basis for understanding politics going forward, or <laughs> to what extent that evidence from the past defines the possibilities we face. Instead, taking the past as the model, it seems that the austerity of the right is now to become, in the words of that report, another form of austerity, the austerity of the left. The, the main problem with such reports is I don't think they ask the right question about growth. What is growth? How does it measure and define not what happened, not what has happened in the past, but our relationship to the future. Is growth something material? Is it simply uh, beyond material expansion the condition of capitalist modernity, some tendency we've developed over the last few centuries to always consume more, to need to be continuously better off? If so, if that was what growth was, 
Wouldn't most people be experiencing life as that continuing improvement in well-being? Well, of course, some are. We live in an age in which extraordinary wealth seems to arrive from unfathomable sources. When the US but global firm Uber went public last May, for example, the stock market set its value at $82 billion, an immense figure for a 10-year-old car service company that owns no cars and has never made a profit. To explain such events, the news media often turn to metaphors from, curiously enough, meteorology describing the investors' gains in that case as stratospheric. What other way to explain, for example, how the $5 million that Goldman Sachs had invested in Uber before it was taken public in 2011 was now worth over half a billion dollars, a return in eight years of more than 1,000%. More critical commentators called the firm's value something conjured out of thin air. The source of these windfalls is nothing meteorological. To understand the ways of making money that this the case of Uber represents, I think we need to come down to earth. Uber is an extreme case, but its mode of acquiring wealth is commonplace. The company created its value by constructing a practical means of consuming the future. Methods of extracting income from the future are not new. They've been around for a long time, centuries. The, joint, the, the, the device that Uber used, the joint stock company, has existed in its current form for at least 150 years. Now we have an everyday language for describing our economic relationship to the future. We use words like stock price, interest rate, technology, and above all, economic growth. But none of these terms, to my mind, explains how the lies of those coming later pay the bill. In fact, the language of finance, I'm going to argue, blinds us to this relationship, persuading us that future, future human lives are not the source of the gains, but their beneficiaries. The beneficiaries. Today, in the face of the climate question, we need to understand how this blindness is produced. The climate emergency requires us to act in relation to future conditions. But governments appear unable to take account of the long term, while their actions often seem powerless against what are referred to as the forces of global capital. Even if it were possible to overcome these difficulties, the consequences seem unworkable <coughs> politically. Capitalism, whatever its costs, claims to have given us growth. How could we survive under a different temporality, a different relationship to the future? in which the future was not defined in relation to us by a principle of economic expansion. Now, of course, for long as we have organized collective life around the principle of economic growth, 70 or 80 years, there's been efforts to point out its limits, that growth is unsustainable, that it is mismeasured, that it doesn't account for unpaid labor, such as housework or child raising or it comes as too great a social and ecological cost? Those are all important questions. But I think there's another way to, uh, to see our relationship to the future, other than criticizing the particular ways in which growth is measured, which is to ask about the very concept of growth. Growth, I'm going to argue, 
is not actually the logic of capitalist modernity. It's, it's alibi. Now, in the past, we spoke of modernity very often in terms of a physical, a spatial expansion. Historians describe capitalism as a process that began in one place, in Europe, from where it gradually expanded to <coughs> encompass the world. Nowadays, we see this as a very partial account of changes that were never isolated in one place. Changes in patterns of trade and credit, the exploitation of labor, of the soil, the destruction of populations and ecosystems were always occurring at multiple sites around the globe, from China and South Asia, across the Middle East to Africa and South and North America. To see these changes as the spatial expansion of the West reflected some aspects of what was going on, but was a product of very particular ways of measuring and analyzing change that obscured as much as they reported. Thinking of that parallel, is there a similar way to revise our understanding of time? In other words, not just to be as critical towards conceptions of history as growth as we are towards geography as expansion, but as it were, to develop a similar kind of post-colonial perspective, to include the perspective not only of those whose lands and livelihoods have been colonized, but those who future, whose future has been taken from them. To achieve this, we need to understand the mechanisms of extraction from the future that have operated under the alibi of growth. So my <coughs> argument today is not going to be that we should redefine growth to better capture what is beneficial and what is harmful, or to turn it in a greener or more sustainable direction. But nor am I going to suggest that we should simply renounce growth or reverse it. Um, and adopt policies of degrowth. It's not that I'm against either of those things. I want to just present a different kind of argument. And I want to do that because I think any proposal either to redefine or to reverse economic growth is still operating within the terms of the discourse of growth. A particular kind of economic imagination, which means a particular understanding of what capitalism is and how it functions. And that's what I want to think about and, and, and help us to see differently. Now, of course, I mentioned Uber. We have a number of different mechanisms and machineries for living at the expense of the future. I'm going to start with that one, that is to say the most obvious one, the modern shareholder-owned business corporation, before turning to a few others. When a company is floated on the stock market, the shares offered for sale do not represent the value of the capital invested in the business or the wealth it may have already created. They represent a share in the ownership of its future profits. The value of a company is based on not what it has earned in the past, as we saw with Uber, which had never earned anything, but the profits it might acquire in the future. Since the future revenue is not available immediately, the value of each year's anticipated income is discounted to adjust for the delay in time it it, until it accrues and the degree of uncertainty um, caused by that delay. The present discounted value of future profits, as it's called in the finance literature, 
produces the firm's valuation. So let me just return to the example of Uber. At the time the firm went public, as I said, it hadn't yet made a profit. In fact, the company had been setting the price of rides that it offered below their actual cost in order to drive the firm's competitors out of business. These subsidized operations were losing billions of dollars every year. <coughs> to arrive at the value of the firm when it decided to go public, financial analysts assumed that Uber would continue to expand until it achieved what they called, innocently, market dominance. In other words, by eliminating alternatives, Uber, and in their analysis, which was mostly focused on the US, it's one US rival, a company called Lyft, could continue to claim a share of every fare its drivers earned, which runs at an average of about 25% of each ride, while using their growing dual monopoly to limit the portion paid to drivers and to increase the cost to passengers. So these assumptions going forward suggested that Uber would stop losing money eventually, after about six years. And then within 10 years, would be earning annual profits at an astonishing rate of $5 billion. Now, a joint stock company provides not just a promise of future profits. It is the mechanism for acquiring that promised income that lies in the future, in the present. In offering shares for sale on the stock market, the investors who own a firm are selling a form of property in, in the form of the share, which is the ownership today of income taken from the future. Now, this is the process known as capitalizing a future revenue. The windfalls the owners earn from the sale of the company come not from thin air, as the journalists reported when writing about Uber, but rather from something not thin at all, something very robust, namely the political robustness of capitalization. The strength of the machinery for monetizing and marketing a private claim to the future. So the windfall represents the value, if you like, of an encumbrance imposed on the firm's future customers and workers. The company's profits, and thus its shareholders' dividends, depend on maintaining this burden. The value of the share and the dividend on which it depends intends to take priority over any demand from employees for fairer wages or from customers for lower prices. Thanks, and it can do that thanks to the greater strength of the company compared to its workers, its customers, or even the government's or local authorities that might regulate it. That is the strength that is indicated by that innocent political term, market dominance. The encumbrance is not a necessary cost of running a business. It's a surcharge, a rent, if you like, that the dominant position of the company allows it to impose. The $82 billion valuation of Uber represented the present value of such an unequal arrangement of relative strength and powerlessness. The firm's drivers and passengers would repay that $82 billion over time from their pockets. So the shareholder corporation we can think of as an apparatus for colonizing time, for occupying the future. 
It provides a means of enriching a group of entrepreneurs and financiers in the present by imposing an additional charge on tens of millions of users in the future. The windfall acquired today by those who set up the control mechanisms and arrange the credit lines out of which the apparatus is built will be paid from the incomes of those living 5, 10, 20 or more years from now. In fact, as far into the future as the apparatus of capture can be extended. One of the things I don't have time to go into but might be worth discussing is what kind of politics could work on that particular mode of extending into the future that the share represents. Of course, part of the problem of thinking about the politics of the share and shareholding is that a lot of others are drawn into um, the system through their pension funds and other ways, because besides enriching its founders, who, who run off with the windfall, the business firm can also provide a source of gain to the retail investor and to investment funds that purchase its shares. Again, a gain that comes from the lives of those down the road. Um, it, in addition, it can be um, uh, provide a source of gain to speculators who can profit not from the difference uh, between the initial price and what it might rise to, but simply by the um, instability and the fluctuation in, um, in the value of that claim in the future. Now, nothing about this, needless to say, is unique to Uber. The corporate method of capturing revenues emerged over the last century and a half in its modern form, somewhere around the 1860s onwards, as the shareholder corporation became what the American economist Thorsten Veblen, writing in 1923 in the wake of the enormous consolidation and merger movement of these new business firms in the US, what he called, or what he identified that had then become the master institution of civilized life. <laughs> I don't also have time to go into a, 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 another aspect of this. I'll touch on it briefly now, but can come back to it in discussion. Um, this is not just a history of finance. It's not even just a history of law, though finance had to be engineered and laws and legal systems had to be changed. The legal status of a share had to be transformed, um, uh, as the legal historian Paddy Ireland has explored at length um, in that period in the late 19th century. Um, mid to late 19th century, so that this kind of apparatus for the control of the future could be built. There were earlier such apparatuses. Um, uh, they are a central part of the history of colonialism because um, one of the ways you could extend things into the future far enough to be captured was through the very uh, geographical distance of, of, of long distance trade. Um, and the colonizing corporation, which then capitalized those kinds of revenues, was an early form of the shareholder corporation before its reemergence in its modern form in the later in the second half of the 19th century. I, I think each of those histories can, in turn, be connected to a certain technical history that ability to capture long-term, long-distance trade and capitalize it depended on developments in the sailing ship, um, in, in, in the kinds of military hardware with which those ships could be equipped, the building of forts and many other things that provided a kind of durability to that uh, relationship to the future. And just in the same way, in the late 19th century, a kind of durability could be constructed out of not 
the arrival of iron but, or, or steel, which have been around, but transformations in ways of manufacturing and the decimal process to steel uh, brings the price of steel down so it's no longer used for luxury items like cutlery or um, tools, but can be used to build railroads. And those railways, the, um, the, the steel, uh, that previously, when steel was too expensive, we made of iron, and they had to be replaced every 12 months. Once you um, can build your rails from steel, they can last for 30 years. Many, many ways you can trace, in that case, there, in the case of railways. Sorry, I know I'm summarizing this. I skipped one point, but I'll come back to railways. Um, why railways? Uh, railways were a durable form of revenue that rather like the early history of colonizing corporations, promised a revenue into the future. And that durability was not just legal or financial, it was built out of iron and steel. And indeed, the modern shareholder corporation, this is the point about railways, it was really the, the, the railway company that, um, that helped bring it into being in that, in that period in the, um, uh, in the late 19th century. Um, of course, the railway age gave Way not only or was accompanied not only the age of iron and steel, but then also um, the oil industry, um, which gave rise to the largest and most powerful of these new joint stock companies, but also then later car manufacturing, petrochemicals, and many other um, uh, sectors that could be gradually monopolized or controlled by a smaller and smaller number of firms. And of course, today the IT sector pharmaceutical industry, many others accompanied by redefinitions of property rights um, uh, that give another kind of durability to claims of the future. Happy to discuss all that, but I have to leave that more historical discussion of the corporation out of this paper so we can talk more about Uber. But before I come back, before I come back to Uber, I, I, I do want to actually mention something other than the stock, the joint stock company, because about a decade after that American economist, Thorsten Veblen, wrote, that was in 1923, when he said the corporation had already become the master institution of civilized life, another, if you like, master institution began to emerge. Another mechanism and technology um, for not just mapping out some income in the future, but knowing how to realize it and acquire it in the present. Uh, alongside the joint stock company. And that second institution, which today is arguably as big as a significant people's lives as the business firm, that was the mortgage bank and the housing market. Um, in the US, mortgages were little used before the 1930s, or if you got one, you had to get an 80% mortgage, which didn't mean the bank meant you 80%, it meant they meant you 20%, um, and you put the rest down. Mortgage finance only really gets going with federal guarantee programs introduced in response to the Great Depression in the 1930s. Um, once they were available, and there's a similar history in, in the UK, um, though slightly different, uh, once they were available, mortgages convert housing into another form of what I'm referring to as capitalization. Um, and in both countries, the US and the UK, uh, roughly in the 1980s, you actually see the complete deregulation of the mortgage, the home loan industry, 
and um, the kinds of limits that have been put in place to place some limit on that process of capitalization, of extracting value from the future, uh, disappear. And with that deregulation of housing credit in both countries, almost all limits were gone on the process of transforming housing from what it had been before, predominantly a mode of providing accommodation, into a system of extracting a lifetime of credit payments. So speculative builders could now increasingly sell homes, not at the cost of the bricks and mortar, not at the cost of their material construction, but as the capitalized value of occupying that residence over, let's say, a 20 or 30 year period or longer. And so the value of, um, of that property increasingly becomes dis dissociated from the cost of putting up the structure and becomes what is the maximum we can charge someone for the capitalized present value of living in that space over the next 30 years. And I think for that reason, particularly since the 1980s, the real estate, the, the, the property and the mortgage industries have grown to rival the joint stock company as apparatuses for indebting the future and capturing a promised revenue in the present. Now, of course, the housing crisis today, whether in the UK or elsewhere, is, is, is usually discussed differently, not as a product of these mechanisms of capitalization, but rather very often in terms of something called a land crisis. Land is too expensive. Um, this, in turn, is often related to, say, planning restrictions and, of course, to the hoarding of development sites by the handful of land speculation companies, say, Olympia, Barrett, uh, Barclay Group, and so on, that build the majority of new housing in this country. Now, treating this problem of speculative uh, 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 of a speculative asset as a problem of land makes it seems like it's a question somehow of sort of natural resources and not enough of some material to go around. But that thing we refer to as the price of land is simply the way in which we represent to ourselves um, this relationship to the future. In other words, it's very similar to the share in a company in the sense that its price does not relate to the cost of creating Uber on the one hand or creating land on the other. Rather, it's simply a measure of the future income that that machine, that object, can generate. And it's a price that represents, after deducting the increasingly less significant material cost of building the house, the capitalized present value of future rents, whether literally rents if it's in the rental sector or mortgage payments that can be captured from a piece of property in the housing market. Housing in London, as in New York City, where I spend some of my time, consumes as much as 50% of average incomes. So what a minority experiences growth, a rise in asset prices, um, measured in turn through the, the payments generated as something larger, as a growth in national income, is for an increasing majority of the population a source of impoverishment, uh, much as uh, it is in the case, as I mentioned, suggested before, with Uber. Now, while housing is the clearest example in recent decades of this kind of development, um, often discussed under the title of financialization, or I want to give it a much more sort of material basis, um, there are many others. The vehicle loan, 
the credit card, uh, the university education, many other devices that emerged or expanded for converting the course of a human life into a set of repayment schedules. Now, the surprising thing about our relationship to the future is that we've become so blind to the way in which we impoverish it. We still seem to think that we're involved in something called, called growth. A century ago, it was quite clear to an economist like Veblen, the man I mentioned before, how this method of sabotage, as he called it, operated. Today, mainstream economists and the business press have available a different language. They transpose our methods of living at the expense of those who will repay the debt into what is called growth. In the case of the business firm, two moves are made to render these forms of impoverishment into growth. The first is to attribute the increasing value of the firm, of the shares in the firm, not to extraction of rents from the future, but to an improvement in what they call technology. I'll come back to that, but let me mention the second. The second is to measure both the windfall gained in the present and the charges through which it will be repaid in the future as equivalent contributions to a larger good, the growth of what we've come to call in recent decades, the economy. So the first move is to ascribe this gain to technology. Is it the high valuation of successful business firms due to innovation, which produces increased efficiencies? Won't a firm's future employees and customers, whatever burden they have to pay, at the same time be the beneficiaries of these efficiencies and cost savings? Well, let's take the case of Uber again, and here I'm drawing on the research of a wonderful scholar of Uber, Hubert Coram. As he points out, the success of Uber can't be attributed to any kind of technological breakthrough. Its smartphone app may initially have made the matching of riders and cars more efficient, but Uber didn't invent the smartphone or the internet or GPS. GPS, of course, that system of global positioning satellites that are put up and maintained in the air by the US Navy at no cost to Uber. It didn't invent the systems of electronic payments on which the service requires or any other technology used by car phones. And the coordinated use of such systems was spreading in almost every area of urban life over the decade in which Uber has come into being, from ordering a pizza to catching the city bus. Their use in private transportation, in fact, was soon adopted by most car service companies, even small local firms. Uber's expansion was based largely on its predatory pricing, which was intended to force local taxi firms out of business. It could do this because its venture capitalist investors equipped it with a fund of $13 billion, which it used to set the price of fares well below the cost of each ride. Initially, it was paying $1.50 in costs for every dollar it earned carrying passengers. Later, it reduced the loss, but only by increasing the share it claimed from each fare and forcing down, wherever it could, the income of its drivers. In some cases, the portion of the fare that Uber took could be 50% or more. Rather than a new technology, I think this was what the historian David Edgerton has called the shock of the old. As so often, the core of the new business was something surprisingly unoriginal, the century-old machinery of the private car. 
No machine has been more important to building the unsustainable worlds of the 20th century than the private vehicle. The car made the production of petroleum into the world's largest industry, contributing more than any other device to the growth of carbon emissions. Private cars had a parallel effect on how people lived, accounting for up to 50% of land use in cities and enabling the creation of suburbia with its energy-intensive modes of housing, shopping, land use, and privatized transportation. And the individual ownership of cars, by far the most expensive item in most household budgets, uh, generated the first and largest form of corporate consumer finance, long before the arrival of credit cards. The car industry pioneered the creation of widespread personal debt through which everyday lives became what they are even more so today, this expanding system for funding the payment of future fees and interests to banks. Instead of developing a novel technology, the new transportation firms have found a different way to earn payments from the use of private vehicles, slotting themselves in alongside the oil companies, uh, the property developers building suburbia, and the financial industry. A handful of global car service companies could now promise a future in which they would extract, if things went well, monopoly rents from every single vehicle journey. Now, the interesting thing is that not only does mainstream economics not give us the proper tools for thinking about this, they actually see this as exactly what the economy should come to look like. And I'm quoting someone whose actual words I will go into. Because for decades, economists have been attributing this extraction of future rents to supposed improvements in technology. In the case of Uber, to be able to continue to make that argument, the firm even employs its own economists to publish papers, academic papers, in leading academic journals of economics, describing this rent extraction as a customer benefit. The company's monopoly provides the data on which this new research can be um, and, and these new kinds of claims can be made. In set, and that's because in setting passenger fares and drivers' wages, Uber benefits from the exclusive control of the information gathered through its app from every ride taken. This then enables them in the first place to adjust charges according to the algorithm that calculates how low drivers' wages can be pushed or how high passenger fares increase to maximize the company's own share at every moment. That's, of course, what is known as surge pricing. And this evasion of fair regulation and minimum wage payments was promoted by the economists as the technological source of new value. The proprietary data from the apps, from the millions of fare, uh, on, on, on the millions of fare payments, was used to construct the argument in the academic journals. The economists they Uber published one particular academic paper, co-authored with a prominent University of Chicago economist, estimating the value of this supposed benefit. Every dollar paid for Uber rides, they claimed, produced $1.60 in value, generating what they labeled, introducing a new term into economics, as a consumer surplus of $6.8 billion a year. This figure was simply the difference between the fare Uber charged 
and the highest fare passengers might have been willing to pay estimated from their, uh, their, their typical responses to surge pricing. In other words, Uber's failure to fully deploy its surge pricing algorithm and extract the highest possible price at every instant became a benefit to those dependent on its car services. The business press and the blogs of prominent economists promoted these findings as evidence of the novel forms of value that Uber, through its technology, was creating. Many economists worked very hard, actually, to try and make the economy embedded the truth of the way they see and understand the world, including the idea, in this case, that a more efficient or a more coercive pricing method actually can create value. Stephen Levitt, the author of the best-selling book some of you may have read, Freakonomics, was the prominent Chicago economist who co-authored the Uber paper. He then discussed his paper on one of his Freakonomics podcasts, and in that discussion he described the firm as, quote, the, the embodiment of what economists would like the economy to look like. So they're not only not giving us the tools to understand this, they're actually <laughs> building tools to allow it to do more of what it does. What appears as a technological breakthrough in papers like that can instead be the source, on the contrary, of new costs and inefficiencies. Uber and Lyft differed from older traditional car service firms in one important way. The new companies, those and many other smaller ones, tend not to own, do not own the vehicles. Requiring drivers to use their own cars made the vehicles more expensive to own and manage, as the owner-drivers couldn't benefit from fleet discounts for buying and insuring them, or from supervised maintenance programs. And this burden on the drivers was imposed at the same time over the last decade when the cost of owning and above all maintaining a car, uh, a new car, was rising significantly because of the increasing control and other system of rents of the servicing of cars by um, the manufacturer-affiliated dealers. Um, the companies merely set the driver's wages in terms of work, but as you know from um, a, a number of law cases, refused wherever it could um, to class them as employees with rights to minimum wages or employment benefits, not always getting away with that but trying to wherever it could. Owning no cars allowed the new firms to evade the laws in many places with which cities regulated the car service industry. Uh, I was just giving a lecture earlier this week at the University of Bath, and the, um, uh, the city council in Bath is trying to drive Uber out because it's, even though it's subject to local taxi um, laws, the way Uber has evaded it is by licensing um, uh, all its drivers in a neighboring jurisdiction, I think it's probably South Gloucestershire, which has much more lax regulations than when the drivers come into Bath, and so on. So there are many ways of getting around the business of uh, city regulation of the car service industry. Um, now, municipal regulation of things is often imperfect, but it uh, allowed um, certainly in the case of New York City, for example, for the screening and licensing of drivers, that's of course also the case in London, and for rules ensuring public goods, such as the requirement to accept riders traveling to poorer neighborhoods or to accommodate those with disabilities, and also for fares that assure drivers a minimum wage. Now, there were wider costs to this undermining of municipal government, which offset 
the possible benefits of any technical improvements one might temporarily attribute to Uber. The company's long-term goal is to destroy not only rival car service companies, but also public transportation. Its subsidized <coughs> rides drew passengers away um, from public transportation, depriving those public services of income. <coughs> One study of, six, of Uber's operations in six cities in the US found that 60% of the users of Uber and one or two other companies in those large, dense cities quote, would have taken public transportation, walked, biked, or not made the trip, unquote, if the new car service companies had not been available. Creating, it, its research suggested, a 160% increase in driving on the streets in those cities. Of course, to build their monopoly, the new companies like Uber promoted the instant availability of vehicles, which, particularly in large, dense cities, relied on surplus drivers cruising the streets, waiting for rides, clogging roadways with cars at the expense of pedestrians, cyclists, and increasing air pollution. That report summed up the impact of Uber as, quote, more traffic, less public transit, and less equity and environmental sustainability. So the future profits of new companies would come not from technical efficiencies uh, or improvements in collective welfare, but for the opportunities for building monopoly power and from political campaigns to protect it. Uh, Uber planned to expand its monopoly, as you probably know, into general transportation services and has launched uh, here, as in many other parts of the world, the food delivery service called Uber Eats. But the expansion into these other areas of business offered no technical innovation and no means of turning a loss-making company into a machine of future profits other than by enlarging the firm's monopoly power to extract a rent payment from future drivers and customers. What Uber eats is the future. What about the second move? And this is the one I, I want to end on. Um, and come back to, which is not attributing these benefits to technology, but describing our relationship to the future using the term growth. The capture of future revenue in the present reflects, of course, this expectation of future profits. The conventional argument is that as business grows, it will create economic growth. The income may have to come from the future, but it is a future that will surely be larger and more prosperous. The windfall in the present is the reward, this commonplace view explains, for the entrepreneurs who engineer growth and create greater prosperity for all. Like technical improvement, economic growth, I think, is better seen as an alibi, a mode in which our relationship to the future is deliberately misrecognized. We can distinguish two aspects of the alibi. There's the growth of the individual business firm and what appears to us as the growth of human society as a whole. We're too often confused. In fact, we've come to reckon the second in terms of first, measuring the human collective as if it were a collection of business firms. The name we give this collective firm, and have done so since about the 1950s, is the economy. I've, I've published a fair amount about the invention of the economy in the 1950s. I'd be happy to take that up. I'm not really going to go into that here. Let me start with that first aspect, the individual firm and its investors. The original entrepreneurs sell shares to other investors who acquire ownership of the company's future revenue. 
they are likely to, to enjoy the windfall gained by the founding investors and, in fact, risk losing money if the stock market decides <laughs> the founders' estimates of future earnings have been exaggerated. But to attract them as buyers, they are offered those future rents at a discount. I just want to spend a couple of minutes thinking about this process of the discount, the discount with which the future is acquired. The discount is calculated by considering what the buyers of stock might have earned by purchasing shares in another business. By convention, the value of that foregone earning is assumed to be the amount that banks would charge for extending credit to a firm, what we call the rate of interest. Now, the concept of interest, again, a relatively modern term, is a way of describing the so-called time value of money, a value that we now take to be a natural property of money. I think it's better understood as a product of arrangements such as the joint stock company or the housing market that reliably postpone income into the future. Without such mechanisms of reliable postponement, there would be no time value of money. In fact, there would be no money. To illustrate briefly how this works, suppose that the discount rate or the interest rate as it's popularly called is reckoned at, let's say, 10%, to make it easy. Because the share will earn its income in the future, the cost of purchasing the postponed income is going to be discounted by 10% a year to allow for that, to compensate for that delay. So the investor buys, let's say, one pound of the amount of income available in a year's time in terms of uh, return on the share, uh, discounted by 10% for 90p. One pound available in two years will be discounted again, and that'll be bought at 83 pence, and so on up to year 10, for which each pound would be discounted to a price of 39 pence, basic business finance. In other words, the investor purchases each pound of future income at a price that drops from 90p in the next year down to 40p at the end of the decade. Now, this method of devaluing and purchasing a future revenue is usually described completely differently outside the, of, of the financial class. The ordinary investor understands it not as the purchase of money at a cheap price, but as an investment in the present that somehow grows in value over time. In other words, they turn it around and look at it in reverse. They don't understand it as the future being discounted, but as something in the present that grows. It grows in value over time. The term growth suggests some kind of material expansion, but nothing is required to increase in physical size or technical complexity for such growth to occur. If anything, it requires something to shrink. The future revenue is being acquired at a fraction of its value, and this shrinkage is produced by organizing the power of postponement. Money does not possess this ability to purchase future income at a discount by nature. The ability is derived from the fact that time can be controlled by the construction of an apparatus that will reliably capture and colonize the future. We've come to inhabit a world governed more and more by such arrangements. We diminish the value of the future by developing mechanisms to acquire it cheaply in the present, and then we experience the path towards that future as growth. That's the business part. But the other aspect is that this growth is seen not just as a feature 
of individual business firms, but as the collective trajectory of society. To manage the control of time that the business firm depends upon, as it were, a larger apparatus has been constructed around business firms since, as I mentioned, the 1950s, to help stabilize the sometimes unsteady temporality of individual firms. Invented only in the mid-20th century, this supporting armature is what we call the economy. Now, we usually think of the economy in spatial terms as the sum of all monetary transactions within a given geographic territory, but the economy is also, if you like, another kind of time machine, a way of organizing our relationship to the future. Like the value of the business firm, its nature is, appear to, is to appear to grow, to expand year on year. As with the firm, such growth hides the fact that more and more future income has been acquired in discount. Its subsequent repayment at full price turns a mode of consuming into the future as what, into what appears as an increase in size. When households purchase and consume material goods, this consumption is measured as part of the economy, of course. But when they pay the encumbrances imposed by monopolistic firms, the interest payments charged by banks and mortgage companies, the debts incurred for university education, and especially in the US, for even for personal health care, um, not to mention the prices imposed today, let's say, for use of privatized transportation, for privatized water, electricity, uh, and other kinds of services. Every other charge and fee imposed for increasingly privatized and monopolized services, those escalating payments all count towards a measurement of growth. In fact, in the United States, in the UK, and in many other countries, a significant part of so-called economic growth is now accounted for by rents, fees, and surcharges of this kind, unrelated to the cost of creating goods or providing services. We live in a world organized to place the future in debt with the income discounted to the creditor and later repaid in full by those encumbered or indebted, which is most of us. The difference between the initial discount and the subsequent full repayment is measured as a growth in the economy and mistaken for an improvement in collective well-being. Let me conclude. I started this afternoon with the disagreement between advocates of green growth and proponents of degrowth. My purpose not, has not been to argue for or against one or the other. Clearly we need to accelerate the revolution in, in, in forms of energy production, away from the use of fossil fuels, and equally we can reduce many other forms of overconsumption and waste. My intention, rather, has been to suggest that most discussion of growth, whether for or against, most of those discussions treat the term mistakenly as a sort of natural principle of material expansion over time. Many accounts of the climate emergency blame our predicament on the phenomenon of growth. They point out correctly the inadequacy of most efforts to reduce the burning of fossil fuels and other actions destructively to the biosphere, but we often attribute these failures to a general relationship to the future that we identify misleadingly as the very logic of our history. Growth appears to us as the unfolding of a human trajectory through time, driven by the forces of modernization. We use terms like capitalism and globalization to name the power of what propels us forward. These terms can make the idea of growth something natural and inevitable. They also make it difficult to see beyond. Escaping the problem of growth seems to require reversing the very movement of history. 
Now, again, there's no denying that some processes have unfolded at accelerating rates, above all the extraction of coal and oil. But we also know that other things decrease, such as the extent of rainforests or the productivity of soil under industrial cultivation and other degenerative methods of farming, or the amount of most people's leisure time. Perhaps it's time to use a word like growth in a much more limited way, to capture some changes and not others, and therefore not as a general term for our relationship to the future. In doing so, we would discover that the most widespread use of the idea of growth in contemporary politics is derived from finance and economics and denotes not the collective movement of society, but the obscure conventions of business accounting. Those conventions describe a mode of living at the expense of the future. They blind us to, way, to the way that future is diminished. Thank you.